0: Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 543 of the podcast and it is Friday the 2nd of April 2021 as I record this. In today's show I'm talking to Jeff Elkins about dialogue, why it's important, how to write authentic conversation, the importance of subtext, how to differentiate between characters, how to research dialogue and more. So that is coming up in the interview section in publishing news. So ACX has now started showing audiobook returns. I can see some on my dashboard for Q1 2021. And I've got, just so you know, about a 2% return rate across my whole backlist for Q1. And they're only showing Q1, so January, February, March. Uh, If you wanted to compare it with yours, I thought I would just tell you because it's interesting. Obviously, some different books have different rates. But yeah, it's just interesting. And only one of those books is in KU, my German mindset book, everything else is wide. So I don't know how much of a difference that actually makes but that German one did not get any returns. So at least we now have some more data. People can have a look and assess what might be going on. Lindsay Baroka tweeted, it's good they're not hiding it anymore, but it shows what BS their policy is. I can see people trying and not liking a book one, but having a bunch of returns on book six suggests people are gaming the system. By book six, you know what you're getting. Book six has great refuse Reviews. reviews and is lovely if I do say so myself people are just serial returning their way through the series and so clearly Lindsay must be able to see that those returns she didn't give any numbers but so the hash audible gate saga continues and there is now a new site with updates on all of this at audiblegate.com where you can keep up to date with what's happening And the Audible Gate team have uh, sent out an email saying that this is not what was promised. So the information that we've got is not what was promised. And regardless of the dashboard update, importantly, authors, publishers and narrators should only be liable for true returns when the listener consumes less than 25% of the audiobook and not for any portion of the cost of Audible's marketing scheme, which is basically just listen the whole way through, then return it and get another one, which is not what our... ACX contracts are about. So uh, that is ongoing. Check that out at audiblegate.com. Also, in publishing news, a few weeks back, I shared my experience, my own experience, embarrassingly, of almost being taken in by a phishing email and phone call that used a traditional publisher's name, brand, and logo and messaging in their communications. It was very professional, and um, as I said, I was almost taken in. And Victoria Strauss on White Writer Beware has a new post on this developing, uh, which you know, de- developing saga. In fact, there are even more companies now. These companies use various different names but they are all mentioning and using the big name publisher branding and media in their pitch including the logo. So they're really professional emails. So check out the blog post and keep an eye out for for you but also for less savvy author friends acquaintances especially uh, I mean I would say especially older people but I was and I'm so experienced in this industry I I was so I was ashamed enough and embarrassed enough to want to tell you because clearly if they can almost get me they're going to get loads of other people and the the things they're talking about are ridiculous so all of this plays into our need for validation which let's you know just admit it we all still have I'm a very happy indie but of course if I get an email from a big publisher <laughs> I'm going to be interested. But of course, it wasn't. Uh, anyway, so yes, check it out. And we all again, it plays into our self doubt, it plays into our ego, it, the possibility of success in a different way. And yeah, so I thought I'd mention it again, because um, Victoria has a new post out again, links in all the show notes as ever, the creative forward slash podcasts. Or if you go to if you're listening in the week of the episode, you can just go to the blog and it will be there. Also, excitingly, Vellum has just added a, a new PDF X-1A format, which is the industry standard for print on demand, which means the PDFs you create with Vellum will be immediately accepted by Ingram Spark. Although we still recommend ordering a proof. And this is enabled for every PDF you create, and they still work for Amazon KDP. So yes, you can now do Amazon KDP and IngramSpark print PDFs from Vellum. And you can always use my link at thecreativepen.com forward slash Vellum, V-E-L-L-U-M, or check out my tutorial, which you can find at thecreativepen.com forward slash tools. And I have lots of uh, tutorials and links there to useful various tools that I use. So in my personal update, I have been spending time this week researching and going back, revisiting really, because um, the shadow book, I basically started the shadow book. I have written about 7,000 words this week, which I'm very happy with because it's so funny. Like last week, I was, I was saying to myself, oh, I really need a break, not going to start anything, just going to relax, try and take a bit of time now it's getting sunny. and And of course... <laughs> back in. And I've ordered loads of books. And I'm basically revisiting the shadow that I've been looking at since I, I mean, I studied psychology at A-level, which in the UK is age 16 to 18. I did psychology A-level. Then I went to Oxford. I did theology, but I specialised in the psychology of religion. And my tutor was a Jungian psychologist. So I kind of specialised in Carl Jung at um, at Oxford then uh, I did a postgrad diploma in psychology in New Zealand actually won a prize for that and uh, my first novel Stone of fire actually features Carl Jung and some of his red book which came out the year I started writing it so if you know anything about psychology you you might know of some of this stuff, but the shadow has become a much bigger archetype in across a lot of psychology, and uh, very interested in how this is going to play out i 've already now got um a, quite a big outline, not outline, but in scrivener you know i 've got all the sort of chap possible chapter headings, and this book is going to be a deep one for sure and I'm very excited about it. It's something I've been talking about for years. Many long-time listeners will know I've mentioned it a number of times and perhaps I've just never felt ready. But due to a whole load of things that have been happening, I guess, over the pandemic and the stage of life I'm reaching now at age 46, I feel like, yeah, I'm ready to write this. So I know it's going to help my writing. I know it's going to help yours when it comes out because, of course, our books have to have shadow in some ways. We don't write happy people in happy land even if you're writing the happiest sweet romance you still need conflict you still need you know character flaws you still need something that takes a reader into the depth and the stories we love are those with shadow and it, who knows whether they win or lose over that but uh, th- this is some good stuff for story so that is coming and I'm happy to be working on that I hope whatever you're working on is satisfying and also I feel like oh, I was so deep in finishing energy and that gets quite difficult and quite miserable and you end up sort of going oh I just wish this was all over and then suddenly it is over and this is this is one of the things actually while I'm thinking about it with uh, being an indie author there are periods where you have to do the work that is not the fun work but that's kind of the Tim Ferriss four hour work week thing when he said the four hour work week it never was you will only work four hours a week it was that four hours a week might be the thing that you don't enjoy and that's considered work and so I feel like with being an independent author yes there's this whole load of finishing energy there's this work which is involved with the publishing and the, the formatting and the marketing and the initial Initial setup of all of that but once it's out there so I've got a ton of stuff out there in the last couple of months I guess and that is now there and it's selling and it's doing its thing. And I can just let it be <laughs> and carry on doing the show, carry on with, you know, some basic ads running in the background and stuff like that. So yeah, I just wanted to explain that the circle comes around again. And now I'm back in starting energy. I'm back in creative energy. I'm back in enthusiasm. I'm loving it. I'm just happy, happy, um, happy in happy shadowland. <laughs> ah, right. Anyway, so that's happening. Also, my book Delirium is in the limited time Secrets and Lies story bundle right now. Get 10 eBooks in the mystery and crime genre featuring Christine Catherine Rush, Rebecca Cantrell, Rachel Amflit, Dean Wesley Smith, Mark Leslie, and many more, including me. And Delirium is uh, basically, it's set in the modern day, it's a modern day crime thriller in London, but it's based around the history of psychiatry, which of course is pretty dark. (laughs) And it opens at the Imperial War Museum, which used to be Bedlam Hospital which many people don't even know. So that Story Bundle is available until the 14th of April, storybundle.com forward slash mystery, storybundle.com forward slash mystery. And just a few other book news because, and partly I tell you this, yes, as marketing, but partly I tell you this to give you ideas for your books and your promotions. So, um, and of course, also to let you know how I do all my publishing. So, How to Make a Living with Your Writing, the third edition, is now on Audible. So, if you are an Audible listener, you can now get that and uh, please don't return it. <laughs> as well as, unless of course you don't like it, it's me narrating, Uh how to make a living with your writing. So there you go. It's also on all of the other audiobook platforms. It is a wide audiobook and it just takes longest to get up to Audible. You can also buy it from me directly at payhip.com forward slash the creative pen. And you can always order from your library or ask them to get it in from their catalogue. The German edition of Your Author Business Plan is out now in ebook and paperback. And if you're a Kobo reader and you enjoy thrillers and crime, I have a buy one, get one free on my JF Pen thrillers on Kobo for April. Only a in the Canada US UK Australia and New Zealand so if you use kobo in those territories you can get a good deal on the buy one get one free on my thrillers so in useful stuff this week really great article from bookbub do bookbub deals on a perma-free first in series work multiple times and this is absolutely they do this is essentially what I do for my fiction marketing along with some pay-per-click ads um, on BookBub for that permafree. This is the answer for wide books and also the relaxed author. Uh, In fact, there's an interview coming up with Mark Lefebvre and we talk about this. How can you be the relaxed author in terms of book marketing? This is one of those ways, which is a permafree first in series with BookBub ads or BookBub, an occasional BookBub deal. And the lovely Jane Steen, um, award-winning indie author, features in this article. So I'll link to it in the show notes. But the BookBub blog is excellent on this with a detailed strategy of how to use a BookBub deal on a permafree. Also, I thought in terms of useful things, money and business things, which, of course, we always talk about. But J.D. Roth from Get Rich Slowly has actually released an audible great courses, a great course on FIRE, uh, Financial Independence Retire Early. And you, I've talked about this. I've been on um, Choose FI, the Choose Financial Independence show. This is something that I don't talk about too much on this show because it's... To me, it's part of my lifestyle and part of my future proofing and part of my multiple streams of income for my future is investing and the way we deal with cash flow and all of this type of thing. So I'm not going to teach you all about money myself, (laughs) but J.D. Roth is good on this stuff. So, yeah, check that out. Uh, he also has getrichslowly.org, which is good. These principles are super important because it's not so much about how much money you make, it's how much you keep and invest. And uh, we all know the ups and downs of the book business and the ways that jobs are. And we've all seen that in the last year, at least. And so investing a proportion of your earnings is important for the multiple streams of income for the other stages of your life. And if you want just want some books on it, you can go to the Creative Pendle dot com forward slash money books. And I have a whole load of stuff there too. And one last thing in the kind of futurist segment, I did want to circle back on NFTs because one of the main issues, and many of you have emailed me about it or tweeted me or whatever, is the environmental impact of the mining on some blockchain applications. Um, And I talked about it in episode 538. I said I was confident the environmental issue would be solved. And indeed, the Financial Times just reported that artist Damien Hirst, who I absolutely love, I, I love his work, And uh, I have a a blog post about the wreck of the unbelievable, which we saw in Venice in 2017 just stunning work. Um, Anyway, Damien Hurst is going to use a new more energy efficient platform called Palm, which is a lighter version of Ethereum called a sidechain, 99% more efficient, which let's face it, that's exactly what we need. So and they say Palm will be a transition solution in the run up to a new mechanism that is expected to reduce energy consumption on Ethereum dramatically should be in place within a year. And it is has a cheaper minting process uh down to less than one dollar. So look this make this encourages me because by the time this is mainstream it will also be more eco-friendly. It will probably be about the same as an ebook <laughs> by the time uh, most of us are ready to do this kind of thing. And if you don't know what an NFT is go back to episode 538 and uh, have a look at that. Right. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Uh, Julie commented, fascinating discussion with Tristra. There are just so many different creative ideas for attracting more revenue. Going off to investigate merchandising options now. Awesome. And Louise commented, as an indie author, I loved the questions you asked Tristra, since there are re- very relevant parallels between indie musicians and indie authors. Unfortunately, indie authors have yet to enjoy the cool side of creative efforts, but you know, it'll probably happen. <laughs> and then uh, finally, I also wanted to say thank you to Claire who uh, bought from me directly on Payhip. And she said the Payhip process was seamless. I think this is actually the best way to purchase ebooks because of the flexibility in formats you make available, Mobi, EPUB and PDF. It's a bit like getting the ebook and print all in one go. I downloaded all three versions of each book and can't wait to read them. Thank you, Claire. And of course, payhip.com forward slash (laughs) the creative pen. Buying direct. I am literally so committed to getting all. authors selling direct because, well, you just get the money straight away, which is just brilliant. I mean, seriously, there can't be anything better. Right. Let's get into the sponsorship. Yes, today's show is sponsored by Ingram Spark, and that is good timing because of the vellum update, which makes it even easier to print uh, on Ingram Spark. So, I use Ingram Spark to print and distribute my self published books wide because with Ingram Spark, it's my content. They help me do more with it. So, why even consider Ingram Spark? Well, if you only use KDP Print, bookstores, libraries, universities, and print on demand sites in many countries will not even consider your book it will not even be on their radar because you need to offer a discount for bookstores and um, libraries and all of this uh, in order to to make it worthwhile for them so that's how bookstores make money is that they buy books with the discount and then they sell them and that's their margin so if you want to support bookstores then you need to be wide if you want your book to be in libraries you need to be in the um catalog that IngramSpark put for you. And a lot of these places would never even consider ordering from Amazon for obvious other reasons. So if you care about getting your books into these places, you need to go wide with print. And I have had questions, well, you know, but I'm in KDP Select. That doesn't matter because KDP Select is for ebooks, and we're talking here about print. You can do lots of different sizes of paperback, large print, hardback, lots of different types of things. So, yeah, even if you're exclusive with ebooks, you can still uh, do print only with Ingram Spark if you want. You will have access to over 40,000 retailers across the world, uh, including things like independent bookstores, chain bookstores. Places like Foils, Blackwells and Waterstones in the UK, Chapters Indigo in Canada, Booktopia in Australia, New Zealand, Walmart, Target, loads of things, plus bookshop.org, which uh, has become very popular in the pandemic. Of course, it means that your books will be available to order, but you will still have to drive demand. But personally, since even having my books available on IngramSpark, I've had um, you, many of you send me pictures of my print books in libraries. Uh, I've sold them at book fairs, conventions and in physical stores. I even saw them in Blackwell's in Edinburgh, which was very exciting when we just stumbled upon them one day, which was very cool. You can choose to use returns, but it's not necessary. You can also choose your discount percentage. You can bulk order. For example, if you want back of the room copies for live events, or if you work direct with schools or even bookstores. I have had several bookstores in the USA order direct through my curloppress.com site. And I order them myself on Ingram and get them shipped directly to the location. And then I invoice and it works very, very well. So what are you waiting for? It's your content, do more with it. Head over to ingramspark.com. Okay, so this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons. Thank you so much to everyone who supports the show and the limited series of the In Betweeny shows which I'm still doing and uh, hopefully you caught the conversation with Chris last week from Pro Writing Aid and the discussion on AI that we had at the end that I hope was very inspiring to you and uh, all these extra episodes are supported by patrons. So thanks to new patrons in the last few weeks, MT Daily, Ania Kolusi Zanon, and also to those of you who've increased your pledge or continued your pledge over time. I really appreciate it, especially those of you who've been supporting the show for years. It demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue. And we've been doing this a while now, haven't we? (laughs) I still aim to continue giving you value that's for sure so you can support the show with a few dollars or euros or pounds or canadian dollars a month um, a coffee or a couple of coffees a month and you'll get the extra monthly q a audio you can support the show at patreon.com forward slash the creative pen right let's get into the interview Jeff Elkins is the author of 12 thriller and mystery novels, as well as over 100 short stories. He's also a ghostwriter, dialogue editor, and a podcaster at the Dialogue Doctor podcast. So welcome, Jeff.
1: Hey, Joanna. Thanks for having me on today.
0: Oh, I'm very excited. But before we get into our topic of dialogue, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and publishing.
1: Oh, man. My writing and publishing story is a very... um... I think, odd story, it really started in 2014 when I was fired from a job. Uh, I worked for 15 years as a pastor and a change agent for nonprofits in churches in Baltimore and Texas and kind of all over the country. And then I hated English and writing growing up. Uh, I was dyslexic as a kid. And so I just kind of marked off my English classes in school as like, this is the one that I just need to survive. So I never tried writing, and then I turned uh, 37 in 2013, and I started writing short stories to relieve stress at work, and I just started cranking out one a night, Um, and it was so much fun, and I found it such a stress relief, and then in 2014, uh, I was working a job that I was really excited about, and I was only in it for like nine months, and then they let me go and I had no money. I had no uh, savings. I had four kids and my wife was nine months pregnant with our fifth child. So it was this really like, you know, critical turning point. And I, the day after I was let go, I was sitting up, uh, up, looking for jobs. Cause I, I spent two weeks applying to a hundred jobs a day. was my goal. Uh, Cause I was like, I just need to get food on the table. So <laughs> I was looking for jobs and I, I remember sitting there going like, I can't ever be in this place again. I can never be in a place where I'm dependent on one income. And if it disappears, I'm devastated. And so I was thinking, I was like, what, what skills do I have that I can market? Because my career had been very specific into a specific industry, and I didn't really fit in that industry anymore. And so I needed a change, and writing was the one skill I had. So, you know, like Lynn manuel and Hamilton, I decided, like, I'm just going to write my way out of this. Thankfully, like two weeks later, I got a call from a friend who worked in a company that simulated difficult conversations. And she said, hey, we're looking to hire writers, and you've been writing all these short stories. Do you want to come give it a shot? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And I've been doing that for the past seven years, and it's an amazing job. I get to sit down with world experts from all different fields, from the military to physicians, to social workers, to therapists, and uh, our, my writing team. I lead the writing team there now, and my writing team, we call ourselves professional mimics. So our job is to sit down and mimic the difficult conversations uh, these people have. And we put them into training simulations that have an artificial emotion component so that you can, it feels like you're talking to a real person. So that's a big part of my writing life has been with that company, studying dialogue intensely for the last seven years with them and just mimicking how people talk every day. Uh, At the same time, because I didn't want to be stuck on that one branch of income, I shifted from short stories to uh, trying to work novels. And I published my first book in 2015. And then I published two to three books a year since then. And it, you know, it was your advice was really critical during that time. I started researching the industry and started learning as much as I could. And I put my first book out and realized real quick that. You know, since I've been working these jobs for no money for 15 years, because in the nonprofit world in the US, you know, the the joke is kind of like your payment is the good feeling you have after the good work you did at the end of every day. (laughs) So (laughs) I didn't, I realized listening to you and to others that this was starting a small business, but I was starting a small business with no seed capital. So I've been thinking of my books as uh, assets and each one I publish. I'm like, well, this may not make me money right now, but it will make me money in 10 years. And if I can get enough assets out that I that when the money does come, I can start funneling it toward that asset. So for the first four years, I really published with very little impact at all. I just steadily built my newsletter, sent it out every month, uh, tried to build a following of readers and Uh, That's happened slowly. And they're fantastic. You know, I've I've built this small tribe of people that follow my work, and then just putting these assets in the world, waiting for moments when I can capitalize on them. And then in 2019, that finally started happening. A friend called me that I hadn't talked to for over a decade. He said, Hey, I've been reading your novels, and I really love them. And I was wondering if you would ghostwrite a manifesto for my company. And I was like, does it pay? And he was like, yep. And I was like, yes, I will do. I will ghostwrite a manifesto for your company. So I didn't know how to do that either. So I I called a friend who did it and said, you want to partner in this with me? We'll split it. We'll do it together. And so he taught me ghostwriting and we finished that book in kind of summer of 2020. And I was sitting around with a pot of money. And so for the first time, I started like really strategically marketing my novels and that's been fun. And then I also started building kind of a fourth leg of my writing business. If I've got the, you know, submersion, the writing simulations, and I've got my novels and now I'm ghostwriting some, i I said like, well, what else can I do with this pot of money that I just had that I have to start building this business out? And I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, Jay Thorne, and he encouraged me, he's like, you need to take what you know about writing simulations, and dialogue and how people talk and start applying that to the indie author world and start providing that service. At first, I didn't trust him. I was like, I don't, you know, that's crazy talk. Nobody wants to hear what I have to say. And then <laughs> and he, uh, he was like, well, let's do a book together. So he wrote a book and I edited it as he wrote it and he found so much value in it. I was overwhelmed by uh, how much he got out of our times together. Uh, so just to make sure it wasn't just a J thing, I went and uh, found 10 other people and I did free sessions with them too. I was like, Hey, send me something. I'm going to edit it. And then we're going to sit down for an hour and talk about it. And hopefully at the end of our session, you can come out having ro- being a better dialogue writer than you are now. And they all, you know, just were thrilled with what was going on. And several of them were like, can I just put you on retainer? And I was like, well, I don't know that I'm ready for that. But I started, (laughs) I did launch a website and started a podcast and that was all in August. And it's been going since then. So that's DialogueDoctor.com. It's kind of the fourth leg of this stool that I'm building uh, for my author career. And it's fun. You know, we do the podcast. I put out a weekly newsletter for it where I give dialogue writing tips I do sessions. If somebody wants to book a session with me, they can. And my goal with that really is to take what I've learned from this other world in which we write non-linear and we focus on emotive writing and um, and we focus on simulating reality and taking what I've learned from seven years of doing that and really applying it to the, uh, the novel setting and a, mm. a more linear story.
0: Well, wow, that is a great story, Jeff. I'm really thrilled that you shared the difficult times that you ha- were having there with your family and your kids. And I know how, I mean, I don't know, because I don't have five children. I don't even have one child, but I can't imagine how hard that must have been. And especially, and I always find it terrible that people who are serving the community, like pastors and non-profit people, are just meant to get paid by the goodness of, of their hearts uh, but I'm glad that you have managed to turn this around and turn this into such a brilliant multiple streams of income business so your story is very inspirational in in so many ways but I do want to get straight into dialogue because it's brilliant in a way that you've got you work in this job simulating difficult conversations because I imagine that you have also had that As a pastor, a lot of difficult conversations. So let's just start with the very first question. Why do we have to learn to write decent dialogue, both for fiction writers and also for nonfiction authors too?
1: That's a fantastic question. You know, it's one of those things that when when I first started helping people with it, I was shocked at how little we actually talk about it. Because I think of it, you know, if we're talking about what makes a great story, there's kind of two things. There's plot and dialogue, right? Like you got to hit the plot beats. They got to make sense. If you're writing genre fiction, it's got the plot beats have to match what your readers expect. But that plot is really just a skeleton. And you can have the greatest plot in the world, and with terrible dialogue, it's just the statue that's not going anywhere. The dialogue is the muscle that moves those bones around, and it's the dialogue that our readers actually connect to. They enjoy the plot, but they connect to the dialogue. And I, when I first started doing this, join I didn't, um, I, I had that in my head, but I was like, is that real? So having a background in science, I was pre-med in college and worked at some hospitals here and there doing internships and stuff. And, Having a background in that, I, I decided to test it out. So I went and got a whole bunch of historically bestsellers. I got Pride and Prejudice, I got American Gods by Neil Gaiman, I got Harry Potter and a bunch of others. And I just went through them page by page. And I highlighted lines that were dialogue, and I highlighted lines that were in a different color. I highlighted prose. And I was shocked to find that most best selling books are 60, 70, 80% dialogue. And the pros, this, this stuff that we do tend to talk about more is a very small part of what those stories are. And so that made me take a step back and say like, well, what is this dialogue doing? If the stories we love and the stories that we connect to historically are mostly dialogue, why is that? What is that dialogue achieving? And I started doing more research and it started to occur to me that well, as, as a Harvard professor, I really appreciate, Alison Woods Brooks says, every human interaction in history can be boiled down to a series of conversations. And that's true for our reader and our characters as well. Every uh, time our character connects to a, uh, our readers, what's happening there is a conversation between the reader and character. And what goes on, like Robert McKee says in his book on dialogue that, Uh, the reader um, what's special about writing over like a play or a movie is that the reader takes the words coming out of our character's mouth, runs them through their own imagination and a sense puts them through their own mouth. And so the readers, like when we write words for our characters to say, we're having our readers digest and say those words. And it's this very intimate and personal connection. So, uh, you know, it, as I've been doing this, I found that, yeah, dialogue isn't just important to our stories. It's critical for connecting to our readers and for creating engaging stories that our readers want to come back to over and over and over again. You know, if we can design a character that has a unique uh, voice that engages the reader, and then we can put uh, words in that character's mouth that uh, modulate their emotions and display what that character is feeling, we're going to pull our readers in and our readers are going to want to come back to our work over and over and over again. And we're going to build true fans. And that's, I think, what we're all looking for is to Hmm. build those true fans that just keep coming back.
0: Yeah. And I think for nonfiction, I mean, it used to be be that you could write nonfiction uh, in a more Straight way, I guess, but I feel now the best selling non fiction books, certainly in self help. And I mean, obviously, memoir has uh, a lot of dialogue in it's you know, that you have to report on those things that happen. But I even feel with best selling non fiction books, by putting in quotes, by putting in little stories and vignettes and bringing the uh, teachings alive almost. So you kind of need, even if it's not dialogue between two people, it's certainly speech from one person or that kind of thing. So I actually think it's important for both fiction and nonfiction, but I do know there are a lot of problems. Now you, obviously you work with a lot of people and I think even in your day job, you would probably see this. So what are the biggest issues that you see in dialogue? You know, what are writers getting wrong? It's probably a massive list, yeah. So just pick a couple.
1: <laughs> so I'll just pick a couple. I think the first, so there's two things that stand out to me that every client I work with, and I'm, I'm, going on, on close to a hundred clients now, which is fun. But every client I work with, there's kind of two things going on. The first thing is all their characters sound the same. And I call that monomouth. Every character sounds like the author. And so again, like you can have a great plot and skate through with that, but the reader is going to get tired of all the characters sounding alike. So the first key to helping writers is to help them diversify the voices in there. Story so that, you know, Harry, Hermione, and Ron all have distinct voices, and you can tell which one of them's talking without their name being next to their dialogue tag, right? Like, so that's the biggest problem I see. And I've developed some tools to help with that. I use a thing I call a character wheel with. Writers, which is a chart. uh, You can get it for free on my website. I just have it sitting up there. It's a chart where you fill in, where you describe your character's voice. It allows you to compare and contrast the other voices in your novel. So you can make sure that your characters sound differently. The second biggest problem I see is I think as authors, we misunderstand what voice is. So a lot of times I'll ask an author, talk to me about your protagonist's voice. And they'll start saying things like, well, she's shy and she, um, li- she's you know, a little scared of people and she doesn't, um, she doesn't really want to engage in deep conversations. I'm like, okay, well, that's the character's personality. That's not the character's voice. So uh, I use an illustration of a daisy. Like if you can imagine the flower in your mind that has the yellow center and then the white petals coming off of it. The stem of that flower is the personality. The voice is the actual bloom that's that expresses that personality to the world. And so when we're talking at, so another thing that I think as authors, we get wrong a lot is we confuse the person out in the voice, so we never fully develop the character's voice. So if a character's shy, like what does that mean for her voice? Does she use less words, Or does she only speak when she really has something to say? Does she use shorter words? How does that voice change? How does her, using less words and shorter words change when um, she's in a place of comfort and security? What does her voice sound like then? Because she's still shy, but we need to modulate her voice to express that she is comfortable and more secure. So I think those are the two big things. One, we don't plan out our voice. Like we'll spend weeks planning out a plot and completely ignore our characters' voices. We don't plan out our voice. So our characters all end up sounding the same. And then the second thing that we miss is we confuse our character's personality and our character's backstory with what our character's voice is and really starting to nail down that. Like, okay, how? what number of words does this character use? What's the rhythm of those words? Are they big words or are they small words? Does the characters ask a lot of questions or does the character make a lot of declarations, right? Like starting to nail down, like, what is it this character actually sounds like? And I find, Joanna, that if I can spend an hour with somebody nailing down their character voice and really getting into it, That's really all they need because once that voice is in your head as a writer, you've got it and you can put it on the page. Uh, It's just a matter of really sitting down and honing that voice so that uh, you can free yourself up. And I think the biggest gift of doing that ahead of time and why I propose doing that ahead of time is because what I find a lot of writers doing now is they write this draft where they're really focused on plot and they're trying to get all the plot beats out. And then they come back and they do a whole second edit where they're going like, okay, now I need to make the characters sound unique. And if we just spend a little bit of time up front getting those voices in our head, we can skip that second edit and focus that second edit on other things than really having to rewrite every character voice. So, yeah, so I think those are the two things that I see most.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I write very international books. And every book of mine has people from multiple different countries, (laughs) different races, different religions, and obviously different first languages. So I write in English, but I do have aspects of other languages that kind of go through my dialogue. So for example, a Portuguese character might use the Portuguese word for mother rather than mum, you know, as I would say, or mom, as you say in America. And you write characters Characters of colour in your Baltimore books. And this is a huge question, I think, particularly in the age we live in now, where people are pretty sensitive around their stuff, and we want to get it right. But you see some really terrible things, like a Spanish character where every second word is Spanish or it's really stereotypical. So I feel like, on the one hand, yes, we must write diverse books. We must write diverse characters that are not like us. (laughs) But how do we... how do we, I guess how do we not write stereotypical dialogue where we just say things that are stereotypical for what we think are those cultures or races or people?
1: That's a great question. Let me put it to the side just for a second and I'll come back to it because I realize now that I should have used a different word than diverse. So when I say a diverse palette of characters, I'm thinking more of less about the characters nationality culture or background and i'm thinking more just about how they sound so rather than diverse um what a novel what we want in a novel like what we want the what we want our cast of characters to be are multiple colors so if all of our characters sound like the color blue then we have a very blue book and readers may love the blue book but they're only going to read the blue book for so long before they're like, man, you know, I just want some variety here. And so if we can get a voice that's shy, that represents a shy character and another voice that represents an angsty character and another voice that represents a frustrated character and another voice that represents, you know, an extremely uh, happy character. Now we have this palette of colors that we're painting our thing with. We've got blue, we've got red, we've got purple, we've got green. And the, Picture of our novel that we end up having uh, is just much richer and deeper than the kind of just different shades of one color. So, when I'm talking about diversifying your cast, I don't necessarily mean diversifying nationality or culture. I loved your Map Walker series and the cast of characters you had there are fantastic. But going to your question about nationality and writing different cultures, I I struggle with this a lot. I decided to write protagonists that were people of color back when I started writing my first novel. I grew up in a predominantly African American neighborhood in New Orleans, Louisiana, in the states, and I I remember that year that I started writing. I took my kids. uh, We were my wife and I were helping build a public charter school in Baltimore City, which is predominantly African American, and. I, my son was uh, in second grade or third grade at the time. I don't remember. and But his class was mostly African-American. I took him out for his birthday. And I remember we went to go see one of the Marvel superhero shows. And this was before Black Panther had come out and before uh, those shows had started to show people of color in primary roles. And I can remember my son and all of his friends standing in front of the poster arguing about which of the superheroes they were going to be. And it broke my heart that these, uh, kids who, uh, were vibrant, dynamic, and just wonderful, couldn't find themselves in this very large cast of heroes. And they were, you know, saying like, well, I'll be, I'm like Iron Man who is, you know, a a white male billionaire. So it's, I said, if I'm going to put stories in the world, I'm going to tell stories of, uh, I'm going to make my protagonists people that these kids can identify with. So yeah, my, my first series, the, the superheroes were homeless because I'd worked with a lot of homeless populations. And there's a lot of people of color in that series. The main character is a reporter who's an African-American man. My second series, uh, the detective Moneta Watkins is an African-American woman. But I, you know, every day when I question that decision Mm. because I don't, I never, ever, ever want to uh, stereotype or somehow misrepresent someone's culture in a way that would make them feel insulted, belittled, or minimalized. Uh, Yeah.
0: So I guess the the question is, so how do you research and write characters that are not just like you in terms of dialogue specifically?
1: So I think it starts with an attitude of kind of fear and trembling like going into it with a deep respect. And then I think the next, my next step has been to get people from the minority group that I'm writing to read those characters before anybody ever sees anything. So for example, for my Moneta character, I got a group of uh, 30 African-American women that were of the same age range of Moneta that I know and I'm friends with. And I sent them pages and I was like, tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me where I need to fix this voice. Tell me how I can make this character better relate to your experience. And, You know, you think you get it right the first time you write it, but they sent me back so many notes, (laughs) so many notes on her voice and on how she would do her hair and on, you know, where she was buying hair products. And they got in a big debate at one point about where, where in the United States she was from, because they felt like that would affect her personality in a different way. And what came out of it was kind of a group think experience around this character that I can then try to honor With my work, so uh, I think I think the research begins with real people, and I think it's more than just one. I think it's it's a plurality of voices, but I think it has to have behind it that attitude of you know I'm doing this in order to be a good ally, and not in order to um, and not because I think it's going to make more money for my books
0: that um, absolutely and i think yeah. that that respect and getting those beta readers is definitely the ultimate way to do it but in reality, we don't all have people who we can talk to. You know, for example, in my books, I, I have so many different uh, cultures represented. But what I do is I use YouTube. I mean, you don't have yeah, to you I, don't actually have tools. to know them. Yeah. I mean, what you can do is, for example, I was writing about an uh, church, you know, one of those snake handling churches in Appalachia, and I was watching all these videos <laughs> of snake handling and people there speak in a particular way. And mm. so I was able to use some of their dialogue. And so I think that would be my tip for people who don't have people on hand in, in every way is to go and watch videos, listen to podcasts and yeah, they, try and identify people that way. What, what are some other ways that we can I think, research?
1: I completely agree that TikTok is in YouTube and the videos like we live in a world where there's no end of research and information for you. A lot of times when I want to capture a voice of people I don't know, I'll try to go and get in an area where those people are and sit and listen. I went to, as a teenager, I got to go to the Van Gogh Museum and I uh, was shocked at his sketchbooks and how he would just sit in public squares and draw hands all day or draw noses all day or draw eyes all day. And I think as writers, we need to devote ourselves to listening in that way too. Um, so a lot of times I'll try to take, like, if I have a free hour, which there aren't a lot of them, you know, five kids, full-time job and, and side gigs, there's not a lot of time to spare, but I'll still take hour an hour here and hour there. And I'll just go sit in a public place and with a journal out and listen to people, talk, capture phrases, capture words. And I think, uh, I think part of the important tip I would add about research when you're researching online, try not to research other forms of entertainment. So like movie writing and realistic speak are two completely different things. So watching a movie with a lot of, with specific people from specific cultures is not going to be as valuable as finding people online who are just, emblematic of that culture who are doing something and just being themselves. So I think my, my, those would be my two, two big tips is try to get out into the world around groups of people that aren't like you and listen and take note to what's being said. And then it, when you're researching online, because right now who can go out into the world anywhere? Uh, but when, when you're researching online, look for real people. Don't emulate existing entertainment because you're going to find that like you're making a copy of a copy and try to get to the real source as opposed to uh, copying what someone else thought the real source sounded like. I -hmm. think those would be my two tips.
0: What I would say, though, is dialogue is not conversation because if you took the the transcript of this, the unedited transcript of our conversation would be terrible dialogue because humans (laughs) repeat themselves and they say, um, and they say "Filler, filler words and they do all these things. And I think that's another problem I see. What I get annoyed about in some books is... Massive, long sentences or things that you might actually say out loud, but that is not dialogue in a book you you do cull. A conversation to uh, it, it has to serve the book, right? You're not just yeah, having two people talking.
1: And the key is so, and the key is like that transition between research and what you're actually building your character voice out of. So, like, we do all this research and we get all this information to in order to use it strategically to build engaging and entertaining characters, not just a copy onto the page. So, you can't just take the raw research and then translate it into. Your work, listening to how people talk is about feeling the rhythm of their words, the length of their words, the words they use, all those tools that we have that we can put on the page, and then looking at your character and strategically thinking like, okay, I'm going to let this character use, I heard one person using shorter clipped sentences and and it gave them this, um, the feeling that they were talking really fast. I'm going to have this character talk that way. and But this other character, I remember watching this YouTube video of somebody with a slow drawl. Well, like you were saying, like watching Appalachian snake handlers, right? Like they have a, there's a, there's a certain pace and uh, sound to their voice. I'm going to give another character a little bit of that right? We don't want a whole book of that, but I'll put a little bit of it into this character. And now we have two very different sounding characters that make for a far more engaging story.
0: I think the other thing that's important is subtext, because I feel that a lot of dialogue is what they say on the nose. You know, if, if I say to you, how are you feeling, Jeff? And you say, I'm angry. <laughs> that, yeah. that is on the nose dialogue. Whereas if I say, how are you feeling, Jeff? And you say, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. it, the dialogue is the subtext is whenever anyone says I'm fine, they're usually not fine. And yeah. I think, you know, in certainly English speakers understand that that's the way it goes. And I, I actually been thinking about this a lot recently is that british people speak a lot more in subtext than definitely americans do for example we have a lot of unspoken dialogue in and it's subtext, yeah, in, in what we say. And the more I do my other podcasts, the books and travel podcast, the more yeah. I understand this because people tell me this about my own culture, which is interesting. So how do we use subtext? Because subtext still is dialogue, but the subtext has to be shown not in the dialogue. It has to be shown in character action.
1: Yeah. And for me this is something that it goes to kind of a bigger question, which is like, what is your dialogue for? Um, And I would say your dialogue is to inhabit the emotional state of the character. So I think when we stop using subtext, like the crime you're describing of not using subtext or just saying what the character's feeling all the time, I find most often it happens with writers when they're using their dialogue as a tool just to push the plot along so they're like okay i need in this scene for this character to be angry and i know i need to use dialogue to do that so i'm gonna ask somebody's gonna ask them how they're feeling they're gonna say i'm angry and that's gonna leave us. why are you angry and then we can have this conversation about why they're angry and you know like that that's not like you're saying that's not how we function as real people and your reader is going to notice that in inauth- a in authenticity and disconnect from it. So when I think about dialogue we're thinking about like hey how do i inhabit the emotions of this character and that's where the subtext comes in because if i know that my character is angry my character may not immediately say they're angry because they don't want to reveal that about themselves or maybe they don't even understand their own emotions then when my first character asks my second character how are you feeling my second character may say i'm fine And if I know I have to get them to a place of talking about their anger, my second character can follow up like, well, you don't look fine. And then my my character can say, you know, well, you know, I don't know. There's a lot going on right now. And it's just frustrating, right? Because a lot of times we'll find that we talk about what's happening instead of how we're feeling. And now we have a conversation going that will lead to my character being angry that feels real and authentic. And grabs that subtext. But for me, it's about flipping that mind, our minds as authors, that it's not just about getting the plot points done or moving through the piece to get to the next scene. It's about inhabiting the emotional state of our characters with their dialogue to help the reader feel what our characters are feeling. Because it's that, that emotive state that the, that the reader really connects with.
0: Yes, and talking about anger, <laughs> so I have to ask about swear words, and this is a, a clean show, so we, we're not actually going to say any swear words, but swear words in dialogue are completely authentic for many characters. For example, your young characters of colour in Baltimore, I bet you they had some salty language as such. Yeah, um, they do. But yeah, it's a standard, the way they speak, it's not necessarily the way I might use a swear word either. So swear words are authentic, in uh in that character voice, as you say, but a lot of readers will not tolerate it, especially Americans. Yep. <laughs> I, I found that Americans might tolerate all kinds of violent content in a book, but they won't tolerate a swear word. So yeah. what are your thoughts on using swear words or, or curse words to be authentic and yet balancing annoying or offending readers?
1: You know, when I first started writing I would get really upset about this because I growing up in the inner city and working with homeless populations and addicted populations through my career, um, cussing was just part of the language. Like it, it wasn't offensive. It was just how people talked, but like we just threw those words in all the time. But then I'd walk into the, you know, the, church that I was working at and I'd have to turn it off completely because there for some reason it was uh, forbidden because it's just one of those things that we've weirdly decided like this is a line we won't cross but I used to get really upset about it and in my first couple books I wrote a ton of foul language just to kind of prove that I could (laughs) and I got notes back from readers that were Mm -hmm. like I love the story I love the character but I'm not reading the next book because you uh, were cussing at it and I had to take a step back as an author and ask, who am I doing this for? Like, who's this for? for? Because if this is, if like I said earlier about building an asset, if this is an asset for me to enjoy and to sit on my shelf and for me to read and say like, look, I, I have this trophy of this thing that I did, then cuss away. But if this is actually to engage a reader in a a story that uh, they want to be absorbed in and they want to go get the next one, then I do have to take into mind that I'm actually writing this for someone else. So for me, cussing has become about understanding what audience you're trying to sell to and shaping the emotive language you want to use in order to uh, entice that audience into your book. So if you're if you are writing Christian fiction for evangelicals in Texas, cussing is a very bad idea. They're not going to buy that book. They might buy it and then never buy another one of your books because that's how they feel about it. But if you're if you're writing books for, you know, ex-evangelicals like myself, people who have left that world and enjoy the freedom of language that we can use sometime then you probably should cuss because if you don't have it we're not going to connect to it so for me deciding whether or not to cuss is it's just another tool in your arsenal to connect your character to your audience and if it's not connecting your character to your audience then maybe pull back on it even if it is realistic because the audience is actually the point uh that was that was tough for me to figure out you know, I have a natural knee-jerk reaction where somebody tells me I can't do something. I'm like, oh yeah, watch me do it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, it's quite funny because I had the same thing with my first novel. And obviously, even though I'm not a Christian, my work is very centered around religion and I write a lot on religious themes and religious history and all of this. And I got a lot of feedback and I only had a couple of curse words, but in England and in the UK, it's completely fine to have curse words in your books. Mm -hmm. British people swear (laughs) and it's, it's not a problem, but I made the decision like you I was like oh okay I didn't even know this and I removed uh, all the swear words and I write in American English and so that is also a decision I made for my audience and I was not and but I think the, the for people listening I think you have to go one way or the other if you decide <laughs> right I'm not going to use swear swear words then don't at all and then if you're going to then feel free do it everywhere but the point is you can't really mix them up because readers will decide this is like a a, a stake in the ground for people isn't it it's like the one yeah. way or the
1: other way. And I will say there are certain lines that readers draw for me that I'm like, no, I'm not. I don't actually care about that line. Like, for example, we were talking about protagonists of color. And after I published my second book, I had a family member call me and say, hey, I really want to share these books with my friends, but I need you to take the people of color out of them.
0: <laughs> no, that's definitely and, an unacceptable yeah. and thing And I was to like, say. no, I'm not,
1: I'm not doing that. Like, that's, that's a part of who I am. But for me, like foul language, it doesn't cross that line. Like there's other ways I can get across the emotions I want to feel without that kind of language.
0: Oh, those <laughs> are very, very different things. Yeah. I, I feel like the swear words or not is the same as me deciding to write in American English. It's a stylistic thing. It's yeah. got nothing to do with characters or plot or theme or anything like that. So, yeah, yeah. so to be very clear to people listening, you, there are, there's an acceptable line and there's not. But um, I do want to just, because we're almost out of time, but I, I did want to come back on, I love I love the phrase X. Ex- evangelicals i'd never heard that before (laughs) i really like that so i assume you're still a christian is that correct
1: I am, although I, I cringe at the term sometimes. Oh, okay. Uh, well,
0: you're a, a believer of some kind. <laughs> yeah. um, and of course, your so, your books like mine in, incorporate these religious themes. And this is a big, this is also a big thing, this sort of religion versus science. You know, what do I really believe? Because to be fair, I don't really know either. So I guess I'm an ex-evangelical too. So how yeah. do you incorporate your faith into your books or your lack of faith or your questions about faith?
1: Yeah, it's... um. Man, that's a good question and trying to describe how it is succinctly. For me, you know, I grew up, uh, I started attending church when I was like 3 weeks old. My mom took me to my first uh, church service then and I grew up in in a very religious culture in the in the United States and in a lot of ways religion defined my whole life. Like, you know, I I went to college to be pre-med and then But instead of going to med school, I went to seminary and got a master's of divinity and worked for over a decade in churches. And after about seven years of working in churches, I really fell out of love with the institution and with what religion is and seeing the pain that it caused the people around me Uh, the institution and the choices the institution made was really hard, not to get too political because this is a writing podcast, but it was really tough. And so I started looking for different answers in my life, different ways to express my worldview and what I found. And so it informs my writing in that it is my worldview typically Like, so for me, the way it plays out is my characters are always outcasts and underdogs who find themselves on the outskirts of society and trying to, and who are often seen as menacing or fearful on those by others around them, uh, because that was my experience in that institution. And so having that define my world, my worldview, I can't, it can't help but bleed out in all of my books. And so that, um, and that term exvangelical is one that's, I think, being used a lot more now recently about people who grew up in that evangelical uh, context and have realized, uh, come to terms with what it is and have walked away from that in some way, which is, can be a very painful process. And so my characters are that way. Right. Like they've they find themselves on the outside of culture. Um, and part of that's just who, who I am. I tend to lean toward the outcast and the underdog, um, you know, show me somebody sitting by themselves. And, the, you know, I, I want to go sit with them and figure out what's going on, figure out who they are and just let them know that they're not alone. So that's a huge theme in my work. And I will also say the the opposite is also true, right? Like all my villains are uh, typically uh, rich uh, suburbanites. So that's, <laughs> if you want to know who did the crime in one of my mysteries, look for the rich guy. That's, but that, again, that's just part of who I am and those those decisions I've made about my fiction. Like, yeah, this is the kind of story I want to tell and put into the world because this is the way that I see the world around me. I also put a lot of magic in my books. I love because I see a lot of magic in the world around me, so I uh, you know I write books full of wonder and weird things, and my detectives read minds and my homeless superheroes fight monsters from another world that nobody else can see and I love that kind of wonder about and mystery around the world around us so that's and that all comes from my religious roots and uh, fills my fiction now
0: yeah, well, it is a very rich vein of inspiration I am the same all my books feature some and I mean you know again in America I think religion is politics but it feels to me if you're going to have conflict in your books internal conflict around religion can be one of the biggest conflicts of your human life and it's possibly something that is never resolved and I also tackle it in each of my books in a different way than you do but I think it's something that obviously none of us will ever know until uh well we may never know even after we die so there you go but it's definitely a big a big theme that we could talk about forever but we're gonna have to
1: keep going yeah (laughs) we will have to finish I'm sorry Joanna I'll rattle off for hours about
0: (laughs) About this stuff. No, well, about me this too. Stuff, yeah. yeah. So we could talk about this for hours, but uh, we'll have to round up now. So, where can people find you and your books online?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, dialogdoctor.com is uh, where I'm talking about dialogue and talking about craft. So, come over there. You can find the podcast there and the newsletter and all that kind of stuff. Hopefully, a book coming out in May uh, that I'm working on now, which is exciting. And then, my fiction is at jeff elkinswriter.com. You can find all my novels there and uh, engage with my fiction there.
0: Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Jeff. That was great.
1: Thanks, Joanna. This was fantastic.
0: So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Jeff today and that it gave you some ideas around more authentic dialogue and character voice. So I have another in between episode coming up this week. Yes, we have lots of them at the moment. Talking about Google Play Books with Ryan Dingler from Google. Yes, we actually have Google on the show. I'm very excited. We also discuss the AI Voice Beta, which is available now. There are some AI-narrated books, audio books on Google Play Books. And uh, we talk about when it might be open for us, for indie authors, to have a go with. So this is very exciting. And we have a good chat about. About it. So, and then in next Monday's show, I'm talking about writing, publishing and marketing books for children with Crystal Swain Bates, because so many of you ask me about writing for kids, and it is not something I do myself, and it has quite specific challenges. And to be honest, many of Crystal's tips are relevant to all authors. So I know you will find it interesting. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today.